0: following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination. And the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource.
2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we are interviewing Mike McAllowitz, author of Profit First. Welcome, Ed. Hey, how you doing, Ron? Good talk to you, as always. Really uh, looking forward to this. We get to turn the tables on a guy who's had both of us on his podcast. Uh, <laughs> Revenge is mine. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, uh, a sweet dish, right? But let me just uh, give your bio here, Mike, and then I'll bring you in here. But by his 35th birthday, Mike Michalowicz had founded and sold two multimillion-dollar companies, Confident that he had the formula to success, he became an angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. <laughs> There's got to be a story in there. Then he started all over again, driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Among other innovative strategies, Mike created the Profit First Formula, a way for businesses to ensure profitability from their very next deposit forward. He's now running his third million dollar venture, is a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Is the former MSNBC business makeover expert, popular keynote speaker on innovative and entrepreneurial topics, and is the author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and the Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which Business Week deemed the entrepreneur's cult classic. Mike McAllowitz, welcome to the soul of enterprise.
3: Ron, thank you so much for that kind introduction, and it's good Ed to see you again or hear you again too.
4: <laughs> yes, yes, I did see. I did actually see you at Sage Summit in Atlanta, but I only saw you because I was going one way and you were still talking to a, to a, to an audience, so I didn't get a chance to say hello. And
2: and I think oh, I missed you. Yeah, right. Which I say, I think I missed you at Scaling, uh, Mike. But I saw Ron, your your co partner you know, in crime.
3: Oh, Mike, my my. my yeah, my partner. I actually saw you run in the distance, but you were surrounded by a gaggle of women. So I I decided to uh, to not try to break in. Everyone was questioning. Everyone had questions the, for you. So
2: the, the joys of working with bookkeepers and accountants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So look, you were you were uh, kind enough to send uh, each Ed, uh, me and Ed, your book profit first, and I know you've got the. Ref- Revised and expanded edition. I guess it first came out in 2014. Is that right?
3: Yeah, it did. It, it, the, the history is somewhat interesting. I originally approached my publisher, which is Penguin Books, and uh, I came up with this concept of profit first. I said, "I think this is this is going to be big. Let's do this." And they said, "Nah, we think all the accounting books have been written," and uh, they they declined it. And, and as a I opposed to shopping. I said, you know, just please release me to do as a self-published book. And I did, and they came back uh, 18 months later and said, uh, we made a mistake. We'd like to re-release this. So they then acquired the rights, and we redid it as a revised and expanded version.
2: Ah, okay. Okay, excellent. And you say, Mike, that your goal, basically you're here to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. Explain that to us.
3: Yes, yeah, so th- that's my life's purpose. That's my mission on this planet as I've defined it. And what entrepreneurial poverty is, is there's this disguise of success that many entrepreneurs carry. Uh, you know, it, I'm sure when you jump started your business, that if, if someone was not an entrepreneur and saw that you started one, they instantly think, oh, you must be a millionaire and you hang out at the beach all the time because you don't need to work. You own your own business. But it's truly the opposite. What I find is most entrepreneurs, and this is my story too, work excruciatingly long hours, ridiculously hard, and then don't have two nickels to scratch at the end of the day or to rub together. So most businesses have the kind of cloak of success, but the truth is behind, behind that is that they're impoverished. That's what I call entrepreneurial poverty.
2: Right, and and you also report in the book that the uh, Small Business Administration says there's 28 million small businesses in the United States that defined as less than 25 million, but there's 125 million estimated globally small businesses, and eight out of ten of them fail, and the number one reason is lack of profitability. Half of them fail in the first five years. And you've kind of nailed this, I think. You you know, generally accepted accounting principles say sales minus expenses equals profit. And from a mathematical perspective, nobody can deny that. But you say it doesn't make human sense that that formula goes against human nature. So explain that.
3: Yeah, and in the first statistic you shared, that's what blew my mind. I thought when I struggled with my business, with my business that I was the only guy struggling. Maybe there's a few others. But then when I heard this report that out of the 125 million small businesses in the world, 83% of them are surviving by check. They're impoverished. And I thought, like, how can it be that there's 125 million people who have the intelligence, the aptitude, the drive to start a business? to build a business and to keep it afloat. These businesses are running, not well, but they're running. How can we do all these things? And it requires so many skills, yet the one skill no one seems to have, at least 83% of us, is managing cash flow, that we can't have a profit at the end of the day or at the end of the year. How, how can that be? So it was too big of a number for this to be a, a, a flaw in our brains, I think, felt there, strongly there must be a flaw in the system we follow. So I just observed myself. And what I realized is as much as my accountant dies for me to read the P&L, tie that to the balance sheet, tie that back to the cash flow statement, run the key metrics, you know, the OCR, the operating cash ratio, inventory turn, have KPIs, have a budget. As, you know, he, Keith, my accountant, he says, if you do all that stuff, Michael know exactly where your business stands. And I said, but Keith, in all honesty, I just log into my bank account. If I have money, I know I can spend it. If I don't have money, I can't. So I run my business off my bank account. That was the behavior I had and then came to realize that these other 83% of small businesses seem to have a similar behavior, that we circumvent the system we're told to do and we go to something that we find far more simple, simple which is to log into our bank account and take actions based on our balance. And what I believed instead of trying to change our behavior, I mean, accountants have been trying to do that for centuries now, you know, act differently. Instead, embrace the existing behavior and simply set up a system that puts guardrails around the behavior and now channels us to a positive outcome, you know, in this case, profitability.
2: Right, because you're right, GAP doesn't model cash. Uh, And, you know, I I love how you start with the primacy effect. We focus on what comes first. And that kind of forms the basic of, basics of your equation, too, doesn't it? Your, your revised equation.
3: It totally does. So it's funny. We can call any entrepreneur anywhere in the world today and ask them, how's business? And I can tell you, based upon one factor, how they'll tell business is going. If they received a deposit within the last 24 hours of any substantial size, business is great. It's fantastic. <laughs> if they haven't received a deposit within the last week or so, Business is miserable, everything's falling apart. It's it's very reactionary, but it it is true to human nature, that's the primacy effect. But we feel in the immediate space of ours, what we feel in the immediate circumstances, we believe has some permanence, and that's the way things have always been, and will always be. So what happens if we do this bank balance accounting, when money comes into our checking account, and we see a large balance, business is good, and then we feel emboldened to spend the money. We first look at the checks that are piled up, and we say, okay, we can pay off all those bills, and usually spend out all the cash. Conversely, if there's no money in that checking account, you know, panic ensues, and we, we try to make collection calls, we try selling anything to anybody, we, we cut prices, anything just to start selling again. So, to stab off that reactionary kind of state of mind, what we do with Profit First is we first allocate money in advance to spending and in advance to writing out checks. We pre-allocate money to a predetermined purpose. One of those purposes being profit, but other purposes also. And now, when we log into our bank account and we continue that same behavior, we see money pre-allocated to different envelopes, if you will, or accounts.
2: Right. So you've taken sales minus expenses equals profit and changed it to sales minus profit equals expense, which I love because it kind of makes you reverse engineer your business. You know, you say all expenses are necessary, but who knows, right? Because we're so busy chasing sales. And it reminded me, Henry Ford got a great quote. He said, no one knows what a cost should be. And you make a distinction between being frugal and cheap. So you're basically saying if you take your profit first, You'll find a way to keep your business within the confines of the remaining amount allocated to overhead and expenses. Is that right? That's right.
3: That is right. So when people see that formula, so the traditional formula, as you already said, is the foundation of GAAP is sales minus expenses equals profit. Profit's the bottom line. Going back to the primacy effect, by the way, when something's the bottom line, the year-end, we're basically saying it's not important. It it's, can be deferred and delayed. And that's why for many businesses, we don't look at profit literally until the end of the year. And when it doesn't happen, we go, oh, shucks, maybe next year, right? And we, we kick the can down the road on profitability. When you flip the formula and you have sales minus profit equals expenses, mathematically it's the same thing. It's just a variable swap. But mathematically, the numbers aren't affected. But what is affected is the primacy effect. It's a significant behavioral change. In action, what happens now is revenue comes in through sales. When we deposit that money, we take a predetermined percentage. You know, it can be five, 10, 15%, but we predetermine a percentage. We allocate that money to our profit. Now the remainder of money is expenses. And what we're doing is, just as you said, we are forced to reverse-engineer our profitability. When, when I have a saying. When you have that money left over in expenses and you can't pay your bills, that is your business giving you direct feedback that you can't afford your bills. That's the lesson. If you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills. That is your business telling you, if you want to sustain this profitability that we've declared and taken in advance, we have to make adjustments. And the two adjustments inevitably are Cut expenses. I found for most businesses, there's ten to twenty percent of superfluous expenses that we can cut. Additionally, or perhaps even more importantly, increase, increase margin through increased value. And there's massive profit opportunities there. I would argue for any business.
2: Right, and and I love how you pointed out too that by taking your profit first and then realizing that you're coming up short on your expenses, you know, taking your profit first didn't cause this crisis. It just helped you notice it. Yes.
3: The, you know, the crisis was always there, but we dance right. around it. We, we you know we keep on kicking the can down the road and, the, and and inevitably it catches up with us. Usually it's a slow, painful death. What it is is first we say, well, I, I can't pay myself this week or this month. And then we keep deferring our own pay. That's one way we do it. The second thing is uh, we try to extend our taxes, maybe go into installment plans another way of deferring it we rack up credit card debt another way of deferring it we refinance our house to cover payroll whatever we keep deferring it at a certain point we have racked up all different variations of debt or underpaying ourselves and then the house of cards comes down
2: right well mike we're up against our first break but i just i'm, I'm just loving this because yeah it, mathematically your equations the same but not psychologically. It comports to how we humans behave, and, and I think that's brilliant. But folks, I'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe.verisage.com. Please keep sending your emails in. We love your feedback. And check out our show notes. We will post uh, full show notes with our interview with Mike, and, uh, including links where you'll be able to find him and his books at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results.
0: You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
4: And we are talking to Mike McAllowitz on The Soul of Enterprise, author of Surge, The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, The Pumpkin Plan, and Profits First. Mike, I'm going to ask you a, a, a couple of questions, kind of in regard to some of the things that Ron was talking about. And let me let me ask you this: Shouldn't some of these businesses fail? Isn't it okay? Isn't that the market telling you, "Hey, this 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 this, this is not a good idea"?
3: Yes, a uh, business should fail if it's not a good idea. But I believe a tremendous volume of businesses fail that have a good idea, actually have a good leadership. Leadership. They are just following a system that is effective An um, uh, analogy, like, would be my if I took my wife out for dinner. I said, "Hey, hon, just throw in sweatpants." It, that so does not compute with her. That it would be <laughs> a miserable experience throughout. It, it's not how she's wired. And and the similar thing is if we tell a business owner who is is truly impassioned about serving clients, loves the the nature of their work, wants to take care of their community. And you give them a system that says, hey, just throw on these sweatpants or, you know, or throw some complex system at them. It's so incongruent with who they are, it throws the business into a spin. So mm-hmm. I think the, a large majority of businesses are failing because of cash flow problems, not because it's a bad business. It's a bad system they're given.
4: And uh, that's the question. I wonder how, how much that is because you're right. If, if we can increase the number of successful businesses, well, that ultimately makes us all better, right? So that's, that's why you're, you're so passionate about this.
3: Yeah, it, and, I, and I think sales is the ultimate determinant of how healthy a business is, not profitability. Profitability is uh, a result of proper cash flow management, meaning can I deliver to my clients as they ex- expected or better, Uh, and still have money left over at the end of the day. And that's a management issue. Sales is simply the customer saying, do I want this or not? So when businesses have a profit issue, that's not because, that's not the market saying you have a bad business. That's bad cash management. And I think profit first solves that. But when a business implements profit first, and they improve their profitability, but they can't get sustained sales, now they got an issue. That's the market speaking to them. Either they're not effectively finding the market and the market doesn't hear them, or the market hears them and is not interested. If a business can't sell when the market hears them, that's a bad business.
4: And and when do you suggest you start this? Is this like day one of your entrepreneurial organization? We hear so many stories about people saying, "All right, well, either, you know they either got let go from a from a job, or they they go thirty thousand dollars in credit card debt," as you mentioned earlier. But in some ways, that was their only choice to get businesses started. Is there do, do you do you have like a cutoff? You say, okay, give yourself three months or so before you begin this. What's what's the thought around that? Uh,
3: immediately, so brand new or established immediately. Kind of like a, a person who needs to start uh, having a healthy diet, uh, you know, when, when do you start? Today is the answer. And with profit first, you you can start with a brand new small business, uh, but you don't actually have to go into aggressive profit percentages. Maybe you do need to make purchases to get the. Uh, inventory you need or whatever, but when sales come in, you can take a percentage. I believe any business, regardless of where it is, regardless of its history, can start with at least 1% profit, because if you look at the math, if $10,000 comes into that business today, we're saying take 1%, that's 100 bucks. because I know if a business can run off $10,000, it can run off 9900 It's inconsequential. Uh, if a dollar comes in today, well... Take 1%. Take a penny. If you can run off a buck, you can run off 99 cents. So while you won't get rich by allocating 1%, you will get rich in confidence that this process works for you. And then it's just a matter of time before you build that profit percentage. So
4: just again, to summarize,
3: wherever your business is, brand new or established, I really believe starting today is the best day to start.
4: Yeah, and really, the, the, the answer I, th- I thought I heard you give, which I think is right on, is the day that you get your first revenue, right? That's that's really the day to start. Oh, yeah, so right, maybe you, exactly. Right? So, yeah, the, so if, if you've got some so, seed money, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Right, so exactly. Some businesses get seeded usually by the owner, uh, you know, the four Fs, family, friends, founders, and fools, right? <laughs> we, we get some of that money in, um, and that is an investment. Investment is specifically capital to deliver on you know, either working capital or by inventory or whatever, but that is not income. So when, when investment capital comes in, you do not put that uh, through this system at all. And by the way, okay. that's true for an established business too. So if my business is humming along and an investor comes in midway down the road and gives me some funds for whatever purpose, like that is an operating tool. Uh, that's cash to run my business, but that's not income.
4: Got it. And I just want to turn your attention. You, you're working a lot with accountants now, right? That's kind of been a little bit of a pivot for you to work more specifically with, with the accountants rather than the, the businesses themselves. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, that's exactly what I do. Uh, about three years ago, when Profit
3: First started getting traction, literally one of the first calls when the original manuscript was circulating, I got a call from an entrepreneur who said, who's the accountant who does this? And I said, "What do you mean?" They said, "Well, I understand now how to do it, but I need guidance and the stick to itness. So I want the equivalent of a trainer. You know, join a gym. Uh, if you really want to get the best workout, you hire a trainer. They 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 make sure you perform the exercises that are appropriate for your goals. That you don't injure yourself. So you can go it alone, uh, but it can be argued you'll make much more progress with a trainer. So." That was my aha moment. Uh, next day, I said, oh, i got to start a membership organization. So we have 152 accountants and bookkeepers uh, who are now guiding businesses through Profit First.
4: Well, that's, that's terrific. That's really cool. But, but the question I would then have for you is, do some of these folks that you've been working with, did they have this challenge inside their organization? We'd, it, little bit be, it would be a little bit ironic that the accountants would, would fall prey to it, but do you think that they do fall prey to their, their own equation?
3: I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that, but they do. It, and the statistics identical. identical. We find about 80% uh, of accountants and bookkeepers that we – interview and are privy to their financials, right? So uh, this, is not, this is a small set of people that we've looked at, but over the years now, it's been about 500 that were aware of their financials. The majority of accountants and bookkeepers are surviving check by check. Uh, they, they're just getting by. It's hand to mouth. And um, they too, many of them, are reverting to bank balance accounting. They, they look at their bank balance and, uh, and make decisions. Because if you think about it, the all those the statements and so forth, that is kind of a historical review of your business. But a small business is very reactionary, it's our ultimate biggest strength and it's our biggest weakness. If I want to change my entire business model today, okay, I'm the only person that has to decide about it. I talk to my business partner, and we're like, okay, and we're off the races in a whole new angle. Well, that you know high agility is something that the big businesses can't compete with, but it's also a curse uh, because. I can adjust so quickly, I have the preponderance to adjust quickly, and can start spinning in circles. And I think that's what all business owners do, including accountants and bookkeepers, is they say, oh, I, I need to push my business forward. What can I do today? Oh, I need to change things. Do I have money to do it? And they start reverting to this very simple thing. Just log into your bank account, see if you have the money to support your decision. If you do, go with it. And if you don't, panic and try to sell something to somebody. So, yeah, they fall victim to the, the same problem.
4: That's incredible. I, I I probably would have bet money beforehand before this interview that that it was not anywhere near eighty percent. Well, again, the, the ones that you're privy to. So perhaps that that's uh, overstated uh, for for the entirety of the market. You know, I I would often well, I think, think, think that that that, that accounts would have the opposite problem that they'd be too they'd be the, the, too frugal, right? Too 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 yeah. willing to to not spend money.
3: And and I think that may be the case. Now think about the people who approach us. They are intimate with the problem. And they sort out a solution and many times for themselves and say, wow, this solution transcends just my need. It applies to my clients. So I think the reason we have a higher percentage is because these are the people who are, ac- are acutely aware of the problem because they experience it themselves. Uh, my sense, I can't I don't have the statistical proof. My sense is the,
4: the numbers are lower in the, in the big picture. Sure, sure. I, that, that would make sense. But, you know, now that you think about it, you wouldn't necessarily be surprised, especially the smaller firms. I'm not talking about the big four accounting firms. You know, those are all right. businesses no. that are you know, long, profitable. long established, right? They, I don't think they're running yeah. their, their business by the checkbook. But let me ask yeah. you about this, because this is something Ron and I often talk about. Do you notice a difference between accountants who have the CPA after their name and the, and the bookkeepers? Is, is there anything that jumps out at you with regard to that distinction?
3: Yeah, so the bookkeeper seems to have the ear of the owner. Now, again, we focus on small business. The typical client of our bookkeepers and accounts we work with is a million dollars or less. I mean, so these are micro-businesses. That means you know, four employees, three employees. Some of them are bigger, and actually bigger small firms are now approaching us, You know, the one-to-fives, uh, with a lot of consistency. Um, so the bookkeeper we find has the ear of the owner because there's these daily transactions that happen. The accountant uh, is, is more on this annual basis. Uh, and so the, the business owners are reverting more often to bookkeepers, we find right now, saying, what should I do to drive short-term profitability? What should I do in the moment? And then they go to their accountant at the end of the year, and they look for uh, the more strategic what I do to increase profitability. So the bookkeepers, I think, have a ma- major advantage right now over the rest of the industry in guiding entrepreneurs to profitability. And we've seen these cases where we have a, a bookkeeper that we work with that's teaching Profit First to a client, and then goes to an accountant who's not familiar with Profit First at the end of the year, and the accountant says, "I don't know what you did this year, uh, but do that again. Like your profits are, are growing big time."
4: Fascinating. That's pr- pretty pretty cool stuff. I, I think Ron and I would be in agreement with you that we, we're finding that the bookkeepers are much better at the relationship management piece uh, than than, than yeah. the accountants are, and you know they they really are mu- well, well. And the words for it, of course, are proactive and reactive. Right? The the bookkeepers are much more proactive.
3: No question. You know, there's one one additional thing though. We've been able to do is we found that if you're an accountant or a bookkeeper, rarely does an established business that has an account or bookkeeper make a transition to a new accountant or bookkeeper, the only reasons they actually, a business would go to a new accountant or bookkeeper, we found historically has been two. One is a startup of a business. They're, they need that service. Secondly, if there's an egregious mistake or, or intentional mistake by a bookkeeper or an accountant, uh, that will trigger the company to, make, to see someone new. But we found when an accountant or bookkeeper becomes a profit advisor, it's a new offering set that's becoming attractive enough to entrepreneurs. They're discovering through Profit First and other ways, and they're seeking out someone who can give them profit advisement. But The, the beautiful part now is the relationship uh, swaps from this almost antagonistic shoot-the-messenger mentality to, uh, to a very favorable one. It used to be historically, if your accountant calls you and says, "Okay, your quarterlies are due. Here's your tax bill," the business owner gets upset. The accountant says, "Why do I have so much taxes? You're, you're killing me here. This is this is painful." They shoot the messenger. Now, by moving to, as a profit advisor, to delivering profit advisory services, when the entrepreneur calls the accountant, and the accountant starts off the conversation by saying, "Hey." Uh, First I all, good news. You know, it's time for our quarterly profit distribution. Here's your check for X dollars. That, that's, a, that's a nice way to stage a call. And the rest of the conversation is let's try to mitigate your tax liabilities and let's try to keep increasing this profitability. So it's changed the relationship we found, too,
4: that uh, entrepreneurs have or feel toward their accountant
3: and bookkeeper.
4: Wow. Mike, that, this is this is great stuff. Thank you so much. We're we're at the bottom of the hour here and ready for our next break, but I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me at asktsoe at varisage.com. Of course, the website, as Ron mentioned earlier, thesoldofenterprise.com, where we have full show notes as well as access to our previous shows on our archive page. You can see all, of, all 148 of, of them, I believe, now out there, and uh, access to our books. And we'll also put a link up to Mike, Mike's book in our show notes. But right now, a word from our sponsor.
3: The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today
0: tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag #AskTSOE. now back to the soul of enterprise
2: well welcome back everybody we're honored to be with uh profit first author mike McCallowitz. mike i understand this is uh, your books have been translated into how many languages
3: uh, I think we're up to 16 or 17. I just literally, we just got another language yesterday.
2: So that's awesome. On. How's it feel to look at a book that you wrote that you can't read?
3: <laughs> it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Uh, I've traveled through airports. Force. Uh, like I was in Mexico recently and, uh, I, I speak very little Spanish and, and one of my books was there. <laughs> so I picked it up. I'm like, who wrote this crap? I can't understand a word. <laughs> <laughs>
2: So, so, Mike, in, in, in Profit First, your, your system, you recommend five checking accounts to start with. I know there's two more, but yeah. you, you recommend five, an income account, a profit account, an owner's comp account, a tax account, operating expense account. I can, just hear, <clears throat> I can just hear CPAs go, why would you want to pay all those bank fees and open up all these stupid accounts? Money's uh, oh fungible. My God, you, you must hear that a ton. That. All the time. <laughs> all the time. But what is the logic behind all these accounts? And how do they? How, so, how does the actual mechanics of this work?
3: Yeah, so this is the envelope system. This is something my mother did. I, I guarantee, Ron, someone in your family treat this, maybe you've done it, you too, and everyone listening in, is the envelope system. So my mother would... Get money from. She looked at, worked at the local factory. Divide the money up. Once she cast her check into like a food envelope, give back to the community envelope, pay the rent envelope, and so forth. And then when she'd go food shopping, she'd pick up the food envelope, chop with what was in there. Now it varied. Sometimes she was sick. Sometimes she worked overtime. But she always worked with what was in that envelope. It's the exact same concept. It's just you know quote unquote modernized for online banking because that's where entrepreneurs congregate and look at their cash. So what we do is we set up these five accounts, uh, and we can set up more, and I suggest it. Uh, What they are is the income account is a serving tray. Simply it's a depository only account. The money sits there and accumulates until we go into a rhythm. Uh, I suggest usually once a week, maybe twice a month. We allocate the money in its entirety from the income account to the different accounts based upon predetermined percentages. So a percentage goes into profit, that's, that is, by the way, a reward for the shareholders of a business, the equity owners. I call it a celebratory account. Um, the owner's comp account is the pay, the compensation for the owner-operators. These are the owners who are also employees. They are the most important employee at almost any small business. We need to pay them accordingly. Tax is a reserve for the taxes of the business, but also the tax liabilities of the owners themselves. Uh, Most people, especially people listening, have started their business in part for financial freedom. And when tax time comes, if they had any financial reward that year, it seems to wipe it out again. So the business is going to reserve that tax liability for them. And then the last thing, the operating expense account, is what you run your business off of. So that's how these different envelopes work.
2: It makes sense. And you have a lot of uh, useful worksheets, too, in the book to help people figure out these percentages. Explain the target. I know you talked about that a little bit and said that you know any business should be able to at least target 1%, but you use target yeah. allocation percentages. I- explain yeah. how that usually, how you see that work.
3: Yeah, so that's called TAPs, or target allocation percentages. And what I did was conduct a survey of 1,000 small businesses, globally, a very diverse set from the pizza shop owner to the spa to uh, attorneys and accountants and everything in between. And for different revenue ranges, I found what levels or what percentages of money were they allocating? Now They didn't necessarily follow the profit first system, but they were uh, allocating money to their profitability, to their owner's compensation. And so we just back-calculated what were those percentages. So what people can do when they read the profit first book is they can look at this chart and say, Oh, I'm in column C. You know, my revenue is between five hundred thousand and a million annually. Therefore the fiscally elite companies do XYZ percentages for these different accounts. That's what I can target. Now the disclaimer is it is a target, it is not a starting point. Like if you wanted to run a marathon, the worst thing to do is your first day of practice is to run a marathon. That's what we build toward. So these percentages, the target allocation percentages, are simply targets. We have to set what I call the caps. That's the current allocation percentages, which we talked about earlier. Start slow, lower the bar, build over time, and ultimately get to the taps.
2: Right. Excellent, and and of course, part of your goal of, of eliminating entrepreneurial poverty, you say, is is the ultimate goal is financial freedom for the business owner, and you define that as doing what you choose to do whenever you choose to do it, which I just I just really like that definition, um, but you also equate profit first with the granny shot in basketball, huh. and I have to ask you to huh. explain that because I love this.
3: So uh, the last. NBA player to use the granny shot with a guy named Rick Barry. And what's fascinating about Rick Barry, you, you can check him out on Wikipedia or whatever, is he is one of the top three free throw percentage shooters of all time. I think his percentages were up like, at ninety one or ninety two percent. Which meant every time he went to the line for the free throw, he was ripping in there, you know, ninety two percent of the time. Uh, Just in comparison, like Shaquille O'Neal, even Michael Jordan. Shaquille O'Neal, I think, was in the 50%. Uh, Michael Jordan, maybe 70% or 80%. What made Rick Barry unique was he used the granny shot, the underhand shot. Now, what's so fascinating about it is the underhand shot mechanically uses less variables. Now, an underhand shot is not not what we see is the traditional granny where you're swinging between your legs, you bend your knees. Instead, it's actually an overhand shot. I mean, your ball, your hands are over the ball, but you're shooting from your knees up. So the grip is a top grip. You lift your arms up uh, with only a slight knee bend, but now you don't need to bend your elbows. The shoulder motion is very simple. Uh, the, you don't need one arm guiding in an another one pushing, both arms are the guide and the push at the same time. So the variability has been reduced, and that means the potential for the shot range gets reduced. It's more narrow. It's more consistent. So Rick Barry rips them in. Here's the, this is the ultimate irony. Uh, I like to do studies. I studied the NBA. Uh, I don't remember the numbers exactly, so don't quote me on this, but roughly the average NBA game is won or lost by five points, I mean the winning team has five more points than the losing team. The gran- If every player on the NBA did the granny shot on any given team, they would increase the free throw percentage, you know, the shots they make. Uh, they would make, I think, about 30% more shots, which adds up, at the end of the game, being like 10 more points. So literally, if every player on any team uh, shot underhand, like Rick Barry does, they would statistically win every game. They're guaranteed to go into the finals. They're guaranteed to win the championship just by doing an underhand shot. This is the irony. NBA players are paid millions of dollars, millions of dollars, to do one thing. Make baskets. Yet, their ego prevents it. Because if you do a shot, that's that's for kids. That's a joke. No one does it. So professional players don't do it. Except for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did it in 19, I think he did one time in 1980 or something. At one game, he he was the only. Oh no, it was Wilt Chamberlain. I'm sorry, it was Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points, the only NBA player ever to score 100 points in a single game. That was the one game he used the underhand shot. So so it doesn't look good,
2: but it's effective. That it works.
3: It works, <laughs> but people don't do it because it's embarrassing. And the the corollary, Corollary, is this: people hear profit first. It's, it's the granny shot. And so your accountant's going to make fun of you because they don't know about it. Your friends are going to say, are you crazy? You're using a system where you pay yourself first? That's so stupid. Do what everyone else does. Do the overhand shot. And you're, listen, you're missing points by doing that.
2: <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. You also talk about the eight mistakes that people make with profit first. And we don't have to go through all of them, but, but what is the biggest one?
3: So the first mistake that comes to mind that I see most often is they go all in on profit first. When people grasp the concept and say, and it clicks in their head and say, oh, I, I can do this, the mistake I see people say is I'm going to go all in on it. And by the way, that is the mentality of business owners. We've been told raise the bar, set a you know, a big hairy audacious goal, always play bigger. So when people understand the impact of profit first, they actually go too hard, too fast, then it breaks. Because you know, a business that was never profitable, now taking a 30% profit first, there's so many cost cuts that have to happen. That it's such an abrupt change, it shatters the business. And when it doesn't work, sadly, people don't point it at themselves and say, oh, I went too fast. Instead, they point the system and say, oh, my God, this system actually doesn't work. They, they prove themselves right. So don't go in hard, go in slow. Start with that 1% and build over time that's one of the most
2: common ones. And you also talk about going at, going of it alone too. Does that mean, I know you, you work with these 152 profit first professionals, like you said, the accountants. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you ever actually bring the business owners together in, in various forms so they can meet and, and see that, Hey, I'm not the only person using this granny shot.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We strongly encourage it. And, uh, even even to my own detriment, I encourage people, before you hire an accountant or bookkeeper that can guide you on Profit First, try to find someone who's doing this with you. Because what happens there is you have a natural, positive, competitive environment. It's, it's like play, playing tennis against a wall versus playing tennis against someone else. We both want to elevate our game because that friendly competition kicks in. So a lot of our Profit First professionals do exactly what you suggested. When they have someone inquire about profit first, they match them up with other entrepreneurs so they can discuss what they're doing and hold each other accountable. This mechanism, by the way, is is used in in many formats. One of the most successful ones that everyone's aware of is Weight Watchers. Weight Watchers is an extremely effective weight loss program, not because they have a better formula, not because they they serve up better food or any of that stuff, but they have this accountability component where if you're looking to lose weight, you go to your weekly meeting, and you're literally weighing in with, with 12 other people around you, and, and there's accountability to them. But there's also empathy. Any kind of change is not easy, so that uh, when other people are going through with you, it can be a shoulder to cry on.
2: Sure, sure. Now, that makes so much sense. Well, Mike, we're up against our last break, and folks, I'd like to remind you, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at varisage.com. Please go out to iTunes and give us a review. We love your feedback. We read them all. We'll give you a shout out on the show. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage.
5: Have you ever read a book that changed your life?
0: Tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now back to The Soul of Enterprise.
4: And we are back with the advocate of the entrepreneurial granny shot, Mike (laughs) McAllowitz. (laughs) <laughs> who, who shows <laughs> the no, there's no, time sh- no shame in that? There's no shame in that. So, uh, you know, it, it's funny so. you bring that up because my my son, my son's been playing some basketball. You know, and every every once in a while, he'll challenge me to uh, to a game of horse in the back in the back uh, backyard in our dri- uh, driveway. And one of the things that I can usually get a, at least one letter on him is is the granny shot free throw. <laughs> nice. Uh, because, yeah, because he. <laughs> Yeah, because number one, he doesn't know how to do it all that well, uh, and number two, it's the only thing that I can really hit with any consistency either. You know, <laughs> one of the funny things about that, you know, I, I read a story recently. You know, Rick Barry's son, uh, who, whose name has a very unusual name, Canyon, Canyon Barry, mm. uh, it plays for University of Florida, and he's he's shooting the granny style like his dad. Oh, I did not know that. That's great. Yes. That's <laughs> yes. great. Yeah, so it'll be interesting. Now he's a freshman, I think, uh, last year. So it'll be be interesting as his his career uh, increases to see if he sticks sticks with that. But uh, pretty funny. The the other thing that's a little bit unknown about the granny shot, and I wonder if the the analog is here for business, is because the shot has backspin as opposed to more, or more backspin is just the the little rotation that are on most sh- shots. It tends when you do miss to bounce back toward the shooter, so you can get another shot. <laughs> So interesting, I didn't know it has more backspin for
3: sure, uh, but that is fascinating yeah, you know it's funny there's these kind of superfluous benefits you get from doing certain things certain ways, um, mm-hmm. and we found that with profit first too. When you do this, uh, it's become a great uh, cash flow analyzer so. Most businesses are told, if you want to know your cash flow, you've got to read the cash flow statement, which, quite frankly, I have yet to find an accountant who can read a cash flow statement effectively. <laughs> I sure as hell don't. And But what happens? What, what was an unexpected benefit from Profit First was as that money flows into the income account, we were talking about earlier, and then you transfer all the money out, the income account goes back to zero, it replenishes, goes back to zero. Every time it replenishes, because you're logging into your bank account, you start getting familiar with the standard dollar amount it maxes out at so when there's a it varies from there whether it's higher or lower it, it triggers off a flag so it's a great way to, a simple way to indicate oh we're having an abnormal cash week or month or by week and then you call your account and you dig in deeper so there's some you know little hidden gems and benefits when you do it this way
4: yep yeah cool so uh, I had a question as you were talking to Ron about the the, the you know the five allocation systems and the envelope funds. Have have you found any banks who are willing to work with you on doing it automatically?
3: Uh, none. Not for, for, for on percentages. No one. Yeah. Um. Interesting. It, uh, it's shocking. I actually met with a few bank presidents of, of small banks, like these regional banks, saying, "I'm begging you, do this. It is groundbreaking." And they're like, "No, eh, we we'll have to talk to our board." <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, <and> <laughs> Where good ideas going to die. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Where
3: good ideas go to die. Exactly.
4: Wow. So, yeah, that's <laughs> that's unfortunate because I think that would be a really cool system, and I wonder, you know. And this is a, a subject that Ron and I are fascinated by, and, and um, I want to uh, kind of transition to talking about the future with you as well. You know, maybe maybe once uh, if Bitcoin or some cryptocurrency gets out there, there'll be there'll be more willingness to try stuff like this.
3: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or maybe uh, an accounting platform would be willing to step up, and I don't know if they can facilitate transfers, but if they can, then they could do the percentage calculation and, and do the transfer. You know.
4: Well, oh, fortunately, so you know like someone who's worked with a software company. <laughs> 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 well, I'll have to make a note of this. Uh, let's see, talk to the development team.
0: Um,
4: so, uh, qu- question, Another question for you, Mike. Uh, other than succumbing to the lies of Gap. Um, what do you what do you see are the chief challenges for, for small businesses in the in the in the near term? Is there anything else out there that that you see is is cropping up as issues?
3: Yeah, so this is my next book uh, that I'm undertaking. You know, it's funny when when I write a book, it's first to solve my own problems, past or present, and as I develop the book, of, of course, to serve other people. And then I interview everyone and say, okay, now that we have this solved, I mean, if it's truly solved your problem, what's the next challenge you face? And it's the uh, illusion of productivity. So a a lot of businesses that have used Profit First and have become profitable, their next problem is they're overwhelmed. The business owner says, I'm actually making money. I have sales coming in, but I, I can't work anymore, so I've done everything I can to become more productive, and it's actually resulted seemingly in more work. It's an illusion, So I went out and I've endeavored to find the most efficient organization of all time and learn from them. Well, I found them, uh, but they're not human. It's a bee colony in fact. So, I found that bee colonies are the most efficient organization in the fact that how they can scale. A bee colony can scale within hours, establish a new presence, uh, scale, uh, within weeks they can be of a massive size. And they follow some very specific rules. So now I'm documenting those rules. There's actually only two rules they follow that are important. But I'm following those two rules and I'm, I'm prototyping it now in my own company but also we have about 20 tests going on now and are seeing great results so that that's that's the next challenge i'm trying
4: to overcome interesting well you know cuz one of the things that that you know and you're you're heading into a wheelhouse here and i will say a bee's nest just to keep the analogy going <laughs> uh, and that is something that ron and i are, are really passionate about and the difference between efficiency and effectiveness and yeah. how imp- how important sometimes it is to pr- be purposefully inefficient because it's it, because it's effective. Uh, the, 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 of course, the, the, the example that always jumps out at us is, is any kind of innovation, by definition, is inefficient, right? By definition, innovation is inefficient. you got to learn from the that's beginning. You know? yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, absolutely true.
2: So, so, Mike, I have to ask you in our final couple minutes here, so you talk to a lot of accountants and work with them and speak at conferences. What's the number one issue facing the accounting profession that you see?
3: Um, so the number one issue is not the number one problem. The number one problem or challenge that's coming away, the elephant in the room clearly is the sophistication of software, right? It's becoming automated. It's taking over all of the traditional functions of accounting and bookkeeping. The problem is, is either denial or fear of the transition. Uh, meaning I am seeing inaction from the vast majority of accountants and bookkeepers I meet. They say, yeah, yeah, software's is more sophisticated. Yeah, I can see it. I'm just trying to leverage it. And I don't think they see that it's actually going to crush them. It's kind of like the, the inevitability of the autonomous car. I, I don't think the Uber drivers even get this yet. Like When that comes out, Uber and all the companies are going to smartly buy those vehicles and eradicate that industry. And, and this is human nature, by the way. Anytime a new innovation comes about, everyone that's in the prior generation is in denial. And so that's why I see there's, there's this denial and, therefore, a lack of mobility with accountants and bookkeepers. And my fear is that industry is going to be crushed.
2: Right, right. We, you know, uh, we interviewed a guy, Daniel Susskind, the author of uh, The Future of the Professions, and he's got a great line, What yeah. kills you doesn't look like you. yes Uh, and and with all this AI coming down the pike are you are you personally optimistic optimistic or pessimistic about it
3: oh I'm extremely optimistic extremely optimistic about it I I think it's gonna well uh, I I think we're gonna enter a, a generation of such radical change but such positive change I think it's we, we are no longer going to be toiling at work. I think we can manifest extraordinary things now. I, I, I can't wait.
2: Yeah. I, I agree. I'm totally optimistic about mm-hmm. it, too. Well, thank you so much, Mike. This has been wonderful. We'll get full show notes and links to your website and your books and all of that. Oh, thanks thank for you. Thanks for appearing on the Soul of Enterprise. So, Ed, what do we got next week?
4: Ron, next week, our favorite end-of-the-month special, Free Writer Friday.
2: Oh, right on. Can't wait. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. Contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.